I know I don't know much about you But racing through my head all thoughts about you Yeah You know I never try to hurt you You know And I hate to see you go Hello and welcome, friends of the pod. We have a new new little show going on here today. Um, in light of some awesome trailer debuting, I decided to come up with this binge mode style of podcasting where, in this case, me and my boy Roger Brandsetter are actually going to be watching all of the Star Wars movies um, that are in their own separate trilogies, episodes 1 through 3, then 4 through 6, and we're going to talk about them, we're going to review them, um, kind of up in, leading up until the new episode that comes out just this December. Um, Roger, you want to say what up to all the people in the podcast land? What up, podcast friends? I hope you like Star Wars as much as Jordan and myself do. Um, I'm sure some of the things we're going to say will either be opinionated or uh, in some way spoilerish. So if you are one of those people who somehow has not yet seen Star Wars, this might not be for you. Uh, although it might be. You might just want to hear about something that you haven't seen. No. You know what? To quote Marshall Erickson from How I Met Your Mother, the only people who haven't seen the Star Wars are the people that live the Star Wars. So if you haven't seen the Star Wars, then I don't want you listening to my podcast anyway. <laughs> That's rough. So let's start out with the first movie. The first movie that we just recently watched um, was 1999's The Phantom Menace, Episode 1. Um, I don't think this one was the most critically received um, it was, I believe at the time, it was the first Star Wars movie not to win an Oscar. I'm not sure about nominations, but I know it didn't win. Um, so that means the, per the previous three were already just a leg up on this prequel trilogy here. Yeah, at least critically. And I remember that it was very popular at the time. Um, I have distinct memories of everyone dressing up as Darth Maul for that following Halloween. I think that probably was the most popular costume that year. Um, as far as awards, I want to say it... Yeah, I guess it probably didn't win anything. Oh, wait, no. IMDb is saying it won Best Sound, which I don't know if this podcast will be receiving anytime soon, but those guys at Lucasfilm sure know how to rig some, uh, some exciting sound effects together. It was also nominated for... Uh, best visual effects and best sound effects editing. Best visual effects. The bar must have been super low back in 99 for best visual effects because watching it again last night was a little... I mean, it was kind of shocking to me. I thought it was a little bit better from the last time I actually saw it, which was probably years ago now. Yeah, um, I mean, it was 2000. Um, 
as far as that year for best visual effects, the uh, where are you? Oh, it lost out the uh, contenders that year between Star Wars Episode One, or I'm sorry, they were competing against it were Stuart Little, and the winner was The Matrix, which had pretty good uh. visual effects. I'm not sure that Star <laughs> Wars uh, necessarily stood a chance there, even though I mean, for 2000, it looked pretty pretty good. Yeah, bar set and raised there by the the Matrix. Let's go through this movie though. Let's break it down so people can kind of remember. Um, you know, the, the film itself, if they haven't watched it before listening to this and to kind of get a good idea of where we're at with the movie. Um, so it kind of, it starts out like any other Star Wars movie, you know, you have, um, a ship floating through space. It's just how they all start. Hold up. That's not how it starts. It is There's too. A, a galaxy, uh, long oh, okay. going time for, you know. You're right. And then a, a screen crawl. The screen Let's crawl. Less, let far, us not forget. Um, but for actual non-screen um, crawl action, it starts um, Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan. Um, Qui-Gon, you actually don't really know his name until like a couple minutes. I think it's not until they're on Tatooine that you finally learn, oh, this guy's name is Qui-Gon Jinn, if you're not... Uh, super nerd and wasn't looking that sort of stuff up before the movie. Um, they're on the Trade Federation ship. Uh, they think there's some sort of negotiations going down, but surprise, it's a trap! And they do some of the first actually really kick-ass and sweet lightsaber battling. No disrespect to the older movies, but the lightsaber battling in there was weak, and this is our first live-action, like kick-ass swordsmanship that we finally see out of the Jedi. I would concur with that. Um, it also kind of set the stage for the other uh, prequel trilogies in terms of the battle droids being the primary like frontline soldier antagonists as opposed to the stormtroopers that were in the original trilogy. Um, there appear to just be some some aliens on a ship and instead of there being a bunch of guys uh and the iconic stormtrooper white armor it's just a bunch of robots which is a little bit different i think anyone who watched the original trilogy probably was taken aback at least a little bit initially by especially the the rolling droids who literally just rolled up and started shooting yeah and they have like their own personal shields and if anybody played the battlefront video games from ps2 you know those droidicas were little shits. They were super hard to defeat. Um, that's just, that's how I remember them. I don't know about you. Uh, I don't think, oh no, I did play one of the Battlefront games. Uh, I believe it came with my Xbox, the original OG Xbox. Um, and those shields were indeed just not fun. They were roly-poly little bastards. Oh, you know what? I was going to mention one thing. I had this written down that stuck out during that scene um, was they they used some sort of Jedi flash speed to escape from the droidicas to go down a different like corridor. Uh, I did not remember that from any sort of watching of this film, nor do I even remember it from any film you know, following that. So I was like... What the hell is going on here? When did they decide that they were just going to be speedsters? 
Well, I think it's that high-intensity interval training that they undergo at the Jedi Academy, if I had to guess. Um, one of the things that I initially noticed from that first scene uh, was that the ship that they boarded was, uh, well, it's the Trade Federation ship, and these guys are blockading the planet of Naboo, which is just like a big water planet. Um, from the exposition in the title crawl, you kind of get that it's like a just democratic lowercase d, democratic planet, um, and they're just blockading it for no reason. It appears to sort of just be a power grab. Uh, and when these Jedi come aboard to negotiate getting this blockade removed, that is when the the guys on the ship and the Trade Federation want to just kill them immediately. Like, they're a little skeeved out because uh, in the Star Wars universe, Jedi Knights are like the Navy SEALs. I mean, even if they're on a diplomatic mission, you know, these guys are badasses. Yeah, and apparently they didn't know that they were Jedis initially. Um, so essentially the Trade Federation here, Newt Gunray and his boys are just kind of international terrorists at this point. Intergalactic terrorists. Um, nobody knows that their strings are being pulled just yet. Um, I can't remember if... I think the first scene we have the Emperor pop up via hologram can't remember if it's during that part or not is that later it is they uh yeah. they do talk to he's not emperor yet he's just the sith lord i mean this is going to be spoilers Sidious, for later yeah. podcasts but he's not um they do consult him to see what they should do about the jedi and he says to destroy them yeah um, so they gas the room which i thought uh this is in my notes uh if they wanted to kill them so bad why did they try to gas them? You had just served them tea. You could have poisoned the tea, and they drank it without even like questioning it. It seems like a no-brainer to me. I mean, if you're on the on the dark side, you should just come on. Glass shattering, movie over, right there. Um, yeah, not just even the movie. The entire franchise is done. Yeah, and then they they end up escaping to Naboo on. Um, apparently they didn't lock down the ship fast enough because they escaped on the droid, uh, caravan, I guess you could say, and started running around on the swampy planet of Naboo, and then they run into the absolute worst character, maybe of all time, but definitely in the Star Wars universe. I don't even know what to say, uh, that hasn't really been said about Jar Jar Binks. Um, the fact that they... Jar Jar Binks fucking 11 sucks. minutes into the film, and he's there. The entire rest of the film is just a shame. And it's not even that there's, like, weird aliens in other movies. He just... He's an exception to every other different... He's annoying, I guess. That's the bottom line. It's not that he's, like, ineffective at combat or untalented. It's just a really annoying guy. And he, he speaks with these weird... Instead of saying me, he says Misa. Uh, it's just, it's over the top. I think it was, um, it must have been George Lucas trying to appeal to some silly part of Star Wars fans, maybe towards kids. I know a lot of people who were younger and our age when this came out liked him, but in hindsight, he really, really wears on your nerves when watching this film. Yeah, and that's um, another, th like I was thinking throughout when they, well, essentially the entire movie, because Jar Jar Banks was just in your face, like, unnecessarily in your face, um, 
in the new Star Wars trailer for The Last Jedi, if you haven't gone to see or gone to watch that trailer, go ahead and go watch it. But there is a, a new buddy for Chewbacca in that trailer, and it's a Porg, uh, which looks like a hamster with big-ass ears, um, maybe a rabbit of some kind. And, yeah, it looks like a cutesy little creature, but it can either go... Ewoks, where people are like, okay, yeah, I fucks with Ewoks, or it'll go on the opposite dark side of the spectrum um, and go Jar Jar Bings. So that's what I was thinking about. Like, what are they trying to do with this little. Is it a character? I don't know. I thought a little bit of that too with BB 8. I didn't like BB 8 that much. Yeah, I could take or leave BB 8. I actually know some uh, slightly more hardcore Star Wars fanboys who are very much not on board with. Ewoks, even. Yeah, um, that's true. And, I, and I'm probably like 40, 60. Like, I don't like them that much. I thought that it was trying to sell too many action figures probably was the, the motive for putting them in. Stuffed animals. But even the Ewoks with their their overly cutesy it, they look like teddy bears instead of using laser blasters or using logs to kill actual star soldiers i don't think any of them even come close to how irritating jar jar binks is yeah we'll have to we'll well we'll definitely look a little bit deeper on ewoks when we get to return of the jedi um but yeah they run into jar jar then they go into a pond jar jar gets exiled from his planet apparently for just being terrible and being the worst um but he decides to bring them back anyhow they are able to commandeer some sort of underwater cruiser to go through, like, the entire core of the Earth, apparently. Um, wasn't sure N Naboo was that far away, but apparently it is an entire half-world away. And they go through the planet, and this is the part where I thought it was pretty cool, where they were actually flexing their um, special effects chops and the CGI uh, with the underwater sea creatures. Um, I thought the the part where Qui-Gon, you know, there's always a bigger fish. Um, that monster was actually pretty fucking badass, and I wouldn't have minded seeing more of that or an extended version of that. Um, that for me, that was the best part of the first act, at least. Uh, it was certainly the most interesting part uh i'm gonna disagree with you pretty strongly here i thought that was maybe the um i i have that listed as my worst scene in the movie only because it focuses so much on jar jar being scared in the uh in that underwater cruiser i thought the uh always a bigger fish line was ultra corny like the corniest that joke belongs in the state of iowa um and in the context of this movie, that chase scene underwater probably could have been extended, um, but it was not the best chase scene in the movie. Um, and it does not seem like they really used much skill in escaping these huge badass sea creatures other than just kind of getting lucky that there's always a bigger fish. Yeah, I mean, I liked it because I kind of thought it was an homage to the... Um, I want to say, nope, A New Hope when they're flying through the asteroid field and they end up planting themselves into a giant asteroid worm. Um, 
I, I felt it was a little bit uh, reminiscent of that, and that's why I was like, oh, this is a cool little callback to the OG trilogy. Yeah, I could definitely see that, and the protagonists, like, inadvertently just, like, getting into danger just because they were trying to get somewhere faster. Trope yeah. appears to be a thing. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not, not sure I, about that I shit. I really thought that the... I thought the Gungans sort of nailed it when they had uh, originally exiled Jar Jar for being clumsy, essentially, I believe was the reason that they listed. And everyone was just, like, super pissed when he came back, especially with these two strangers, just two dudes with weird clothes. Um, I, I also wanted to say that I think the Jedi attire, generally, not just in this movie, but throughout the franchise, is pretty reminiscent of Kanye West's clothing line. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I mean, Kanye loves Star Wars, I'm pretty sure. Star Wars and Will Ferrell movies. Um, but they get to, tat or not Tatooine, they get to Naboo. They rendezvous with the Queen, um, the Queen and quote-unquote Padme as well. Um, and they, I guess, devise a plan to leave the planet after it, the Trade Federation invades even though the queen is pretty adamant about not leaving the planet, but she decides to do so anyway with not a whole lot of coercion. Um, and then they're off, and they're hyper thrusters. Something on the ship gets damaged, that's all I know. R2 turns into a hero because he allows them to escape, uh, but they need to land on this desert planet of Tatooine in order to make repairs. Yeah, I have down that uh, MVP for that first act is R2-D2 for facilitating the clean escape. Otherwise, that ship gets blown up super quick. MVP, I like that. R2-D2, stepping up. Yeah, he's, uh, I guess I'd, I'd equate it to maybe like a defensive back who makes like a clutch time interception to stop the other team from driving. I don't. I think we're going to end up mixing some metaphors if I keep going with the sports here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that that escape was was pretty uh, pretty harrowing. Um, I wanted to point out now and through the end of the film that Queen Amidala, who's played by Keira Knightley's outfits, the entire uh, the entire movie are super on point. I think that they, I want to say they, I guess we read through the Oscars before, but I thought they at least got nominated for a, a Golden Globe or something. But they were very very. Um, well, I guess Star Wars, you could tell that she was royalty. You could tell that she's not of this world. Um, pretty pretty cool-looking stuff. Yeah, and um, let's just jump into it right away. Spoilers, Padme is actually Queen Amidala, because um, I have another point that I want to make about that pretty quick here. Um, but to go back to your costume point with the Queen, um, in my deep dive, I discovered that they were really trying to make, um, especially like the royalty, uh, maybe some of the senators' costumes as well. Once we get to Coruscant, Coruscant, I can't, I can't say that. Coruscant. Coruscant. Um, there you go. They're trying to make it a little bit more extravagant to kind of, um, I guess, exemplify a little bit more freedoms that um, individual planets and societies had before the um, Empire takeover where it's a little bit more muted and they don't have a whole lot of liberties or separate traditions because it all gets kind of drugged down to blacks and grays as you probably remember um 
but yeah, that's what I found on my deep dive. So that's pretty interesting, and I could definitely see that. I mean, they were they popped on the screen. They used cool colors or a use of feathers. Her hair was always very cool. Um, and yeah, in the original trilogy, you really only see cool hair on Leia, a princess, um, and everyone's out pretty ragged, I guess, since they're all part of the rebellion and everyone else is a bad guy wearing, um, either armor in black or white, or just like the standard gray straight button, not particularly good looking uniforms. Yeah. And part of the reason I feel like I'm glad you brought up Leia. I feel like part of the reason that the whole metal bikini, not only cause it was kind of promiscuous at the time but also it's like oh okay she's out of this plain <laughs> this plain white gown dress that you know there's nothing really um that pops out about it um but you can even see that in the wardrobe with like the other monarchs and governors that are on Naboo um you see that with Senator Palpatine um it's just it looks like it was definitely a, a different time compared to um what technically chronologically takes place afterwards. Um, let's move on to Act Two. Um, Act Two, they they get to Tatooine and they just land their ship. Uh, Padme's. Oh wait, no, I forgot. I wanted to double back because I had a point about Padme that I really want to discuss because I think it's worth discussing. Um, I don't know if this was just to throw everybody in her circle off about the fact that um, there's actually a handmaiden, handmaiden slash bodyguard pretending to be the queen, but the queen makes Padme clean off our MVP of Act 1, R2-D2, on the ship, and I thought that was kind of... I, I don't know what to think about that, because you clearly know that this is actually the queen, and you are commanding her to do manual labor manual servant labor what did you think of that did that pop into your mind at all yeah definitely i immediately um so I've, i have obviously seen this before um and this time i was watching for details knowing we are going to do this podcast and i wanted to make sure that natalie portman was not in makeup or she was in makeup in the early scenes um she wasn't she was disguised as the handmaid the entire time for Kira Knightley's fake news Queen Amidala. Um, so I didn't, I think that's just part of playing the role. You have to, you have to sell it. And part of that includes scrubbing a, a droid. And I don't, I don't even think she probably minded it that much. I mean, R2 would just save all of their hides. I mean, that's, that's fine. It's part of the gig. True. True that. I just thought I, you know, you could have had a different little handmaid in there kind of clean off R2. I thought it was just a, a power move by Kira Knightley's character be like, hey, you, you got to sell this role, so go clean that droid. It got her more dialogue. Got to give them that, but still, I was a little like, what continuity is she right there for me? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, maybe she just was not super thrilled that she was just threatened by the Nemoidians who had invaded the dudes from the trade federation. Um, I mean, she had a gun held to her head at one point. I'm sure she wasn't super thrilled. So maybe this was a little bit of payback. Who knows? 
Yeah, I mean, who knows? Um, but anyway, we're on Tatooine now. Desert planet, um, sparsely populated, except for some Tusken Raiders and a few villages. This is the second city that we're actually treated to on Tatooine. It's Mos Espa. Um, contrary to popular belief that it's Mos Eisley from uh, the first, um, I guess, inception of the Star Wars movies. But we run into Anakin Skywalker, played by Jake Lloyd. A uh, little little Annie with his bowl cut. Shmi Skywalker, his mom. Uh, what was the first thing that popped in your head when we saw Anakin at Watto's junkyard thing? Uh, first thought for me was uh, Qui-Gon completely whiffing on the Jedi mind trick on Watto. The only thing oh, that yeah. can convince him is dough, that hard cash. He does not accept credits. He wants he wants cash. Straight and, cash, uh, homie. <laughs> Qui-Gon uh, goes for the old Jedi mind trick, which I think most Star Wars fans are pretty familiar with, and it just totally does not work. Yeah. Pretty, pretty funny. That's pretty rough. I actually, mine took place without Qui-Gon in the room. It was... Fucking Anakin Skywalker coming out so winging at Padme Amidala. Are you an angel? He says to her in his first lines to his future wife. He yeah, is just I have all that in. In, my, in my best lines of the entire movie. <laughs> Are you an angel? Oh my god. I loved that. That is a power move that only the best stick men in the galaxy, I think. are. That's like a Han Solo move right there. Yeah, I feel like Han would have been uh, a little bit more blunt. Uh, that was just downright smooth. I mean, and by a, uh, a nine-year-old, or at least in canon, in, in the film, he's nine and she's 14. So it's not totally creepy, uh, even though in real life, I think that uh, he was, uh, I have this down here somewhere, I think he was eight and she was 18. Yeah. Or no, I'm sorry. He was 10 and she was 18. Uh, so there's an eight-year difference in real life, which makes it a little bit creepier. The four-year makes it a little cuter, but nonetheless, fantastic line. Um, I'm sure I'm going to hear one of our friends use that this weekend if they <laughs> listen to this podcast. When we when we talk about um, Attack of the Clones 2, one thing that always stuck out to me is that for some reason, Padme... Didn't I mean she looked the same from the first movie to me every time I watched it? But Anakin was just a completely like adult, different person, and I was like, "What are the?" I never knew as a viewer what the timelines were because I never like researched this sort of thing when those movies first came out. So that was something that I never thought was handled very smoothly or elegantly. Yeah, I think that the um, the the age difference being what I say five years nine and 14 like she's tell she's older than 14 just based on her acting abilities uh, alone but I mean it, it, in terms of canon being five years apart seems I don't know I guess consistent with how they act towards each other in later films um, yeah I think uh, just like the Luke Leia kiss it's probably best to not think about it too much yeah, that's just something you gotta kind of overlook. Um, anyway, 
they get caught into a sandstorm. Uh, briefly before that, we run into, I have him written down here as fake-ass Sabulba because I think he's not a dangerous gangster at all. I think he's a punk bitch. Um, any thoughts on Sabulba? Uh, I have a note here that Sabalba gets it in. Uh, the first time we see him, he's getting massaged by two intergalactic babes, I believe is the, uh, the term they found on Wikipedia. That was at the race. Uh, I'm sorry? That was at the race. That was like a pre-race ritual, getting the rub down. Uh, cannot blame him. Um. He fucks. I yeah, guess. he's just a, he, he's a trash talker. I don't know, he's just that guy. Uh, we, we've all met that guy. I mean, he, he's won a lot of races. He can back up his trash talk, but... Again, he's trash-talking a nine-year-old slave, so I don't know what that says about him either. Yeah, true. He's kind of a slimy... I mean, what, like, random alien is not pretty slimy in this universe? Um, but yeah, they they end up meeting Shmi Skywalker, um, kind of like, as I said before, and they are hanging out, trying to figure out different ways to get payments and money um we run into c-3po who i also think is annoying as hell too um they ultimately decide on pod racing the the first major like intergalactic sporting event for the entire series genre <laughs> yeah uh the pod racing scene in general is one of my favorite scenes in this movie um, in terms of just like how the entire thing works for anyone who's uninitiated, which if you're still listening, I doubt you are, but just for, for argument's sake, uh, it's essentially just like a, a sled that these guys are on that's tethered to two jet engines and they race around like F1 racers. Um, and, uh, I mean, according to everyone who speaks about it in the film, there's plenty of deaths that occur. Uh, and maimings that occur during this uh, We see sport. it, too. People die. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people are cheering. There's, like, the lighthearted, two-headed very... commentator, the Tony Romo and Jim Nance of the Star Wars universe. Very um, uh, gladiator-esque, where they they want blood. Yeah, it's, it's a little gritty. I mean, there's the Tusken Raiders who are taking, like, sniper pot shots at these racers which does not seem like it happens in many other sports uh in real life or in that universe but definitely it, not. It, it's rough i I, <laughs> I can't really imagine it existing on a planet other than one is barren and uh just rough looking ass tattooing yeah definitely um so we actually have a segment that i want to dive into um, this is just going to be the part of the podcast where we pick one specific topic. We either dive into some history about it to give the listener a little bit more backstory, um, or we just essentially nerd out over this one specific thing. Um, this time we did choose pod racing. Um, we're going to dive into that in a second, but Roger, I want to talk to you about something pretty important. Do go on. Um, so earlier in the podcast, um, you know, episodes one, two, I'm not sure if I hit it on three, um, I always wanted to talk a little bit 
um, during the podcast about somebody maybe doing something creative, uh, maybe taking control of their own destiny by starting a business or, you know, just continuing on with something that they've always been really passionate about. Um, I haven't done my research for one recently, but I thought this would be a good time to maybe touch on um, Puerto Rico because there are still 90% of the country is without clean drinking water. Um, and I figured this would just be a good time to remind people to um, do anything you can to help. There's they are Americans. They do need our assistance. Uh, you can go to globalgiving.org. Um, give what you can. You know, do what I always do. If I find myself, you know, wanting to get something pretty, pretty ex extravagant for myself, or even something pretty low key that I feel like I don't need necessarily at the time, I take the money that I was going to spend on that, and I give it to a good cause. Give it to somebody who truly needs it. Somebody who's drinking toxic water right now down in Puerto Rico so that's what I wanted to take this moment and talk about before we dive into the pod racing man I had heard uh on pod save America um the one that came out today on October the 12th that there were people drinking water from super fund sites in puerto rico and for people who don't know superfund um is this designation um of toxic waste dumps so these people are literally drinking just toxic waste water they don't have access to clean water they don't have electricity there's no internet um and there's just not enough attention being paid to this by our government right now which is really sad because as Jordan said these people are Americans in ever like they are American citizens they can't vote because it's Puerto Rico but it's a US territory there's US citizens and we need to do more as a country to help these people so what I've been doing is whenever I buy something extra extravagant like maybe my my $15 six pack of beer or whatever I'm not gonna knock at the beer look I really like to drink my craft brews, but I'm going to match the donations every single time I do that. And I've been doing that for the past week. Um, it's just a small way that you can give to people who really need it, who aren't really going to get that help many other ways. There you go. That's a good idea. Before you go out, before you get tipsy and wasted, match your pregame drink. I like that. Match your booze. Go to globalgiving.org and... Um, match whatever you're drinking. Um, if you're drinking Burnett's, donate double. <laughs> yeah, Taylor. Um, let's let's go into pod racing. Um, let's nerd out, nerd out sesh. You want to start it? Uh, yeah. So this actually is one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. Um, interrupted briefly by again the worst character, Jar Jar Banks. Uh, so there's a swelling music very orchestral lots of strings there's this very bleak desert landscape there's the pod race or excuse me the pod racer pods i guess warming up revving their engines the flags are being walked across in the billowing wind and then it cuts to some camel thing farting and jar jar going p you suck <laughs> completely out of nowhere 
I'm sure that was a great hit in the movie theaters for like seven to ten year olds, but like I was these guys nervous. are gearing up for this race where they could die, and many, if not most of them, do, and retreated to some alien camel farting in Jar Jar's face. I just didn't. Uh, up to that point, that was the best scene in the film, and it continues to build. If you ignore that one part, it is the best dramatic scene. Uh, right before they uh, pop the gun and all the racers zoom off. That was that was their sports movie moment. I mean, can you imagine if uh, you're watching Remember the Titans and Gary Rotier is in the hospital watching his Titans take... Uh, spoilers if you haven't seen fucking Remember the Titans, whatever. Um, and he's watching his Titans team win and he just farts for no apparent reason just to add some levity to the situation no you don't do it it ruins the entire scene cuts to sunshine farting crap in his pants <laughs> sunshine yeah um so the race starts i understand though that you were looking a little bit more at the vehicles this time around rather than the actual scenario that's shaping out on this dusty desert dangerous track yeah so i had a few observations as well as a not a, really a segment this is your show uh one weird similarity i noted when i first saw these vehicles was it felt a lot like wacky racers were all these different uh species of aliens like there's like the weird one with a weird, weird alligator face there's like the human there's the shit talker sabalba and they're all you know all these different shape pots and while they're all really cool looking, a lot of the pilots of these look like really, really dorky aliens. And it <laughs> took, took me out of it a little bit. But uh, overall, I think it is a decent show of the diverse population that's on Tatooine that enjoys these races. It kind of makes the whole universe seem a little bit more cohesive, where this is something that as a planet they all like to watch and partake in togetherness that's nice yeah um overall i think pod racing is way better than nascar just from the few minutes we see <laughs> in this movie and what i know about nascar yeah definitely um, I, I like the the i guess the dichotomy of the different alien space species and also like their different pod racers like it was pretty cool to see them all in like individual vehicles that i mean from based on anakin's suggestion he built his own pod racing vehicle so it made you maybe feel like the other species built theirs by themselves too made their own modifications things like that so um that's definitely something that's different unique yeah i definitely like that each pod looked just different i mean there's ones that you like more and less the ones with a giant goofy jet engines and then there's anakin's which is very basic but sleek and you would think just from like a, a physics perspective the lightest one with the most thrust is going to win and it appeared during the race that his just cleaned up like he just flew by these guys as soon as he got his crap sorted out yeah he got like stalled or delayed like right from the beginning and then continuously through the race but as soon as he got you know the the pod racer started or got one of the engines connected and back online all of a sudden he was just dusting these other people in the race and from a 
physical perspective, I was looking at Sebulba's Pod Racer, and it doesn't look like it should be good at all because it has two giant clunky um, pods engines on the front. And first of all, how do you see past those? Second of all, it's not very aerodynamic or sleek around sharp turns, anything like that. So I, I don't know how Sebulba's the best at it. Yeah, I mean, there's the the whole controlling these things question, which I think it's the Star Wars universe, and we kind of just have to let some things go, suspend disbelief a little bit. Um, the power coupling between the two engines blew for one of the racers, and they separated and flew off uh, into different directions and exploded. It just seems crazy to me that this one, like, it's not really even a, it's not really connected. It's just like this electric, thunderbolt wire thing. it's not even a wire it's just like a connection that connects these two engines yeah. and that is like the the crux that all of these depend on it's nuts to me it's, yeah it's pretty bananas but i mean you you deal with it because it's a cool cool little scene in the second act here um they obviously win the race or anakin wins the race and it is said before that, you know, he has fast reflexes because he's good with the force or whatever. Um, I believe the line was, uh, it appears he has really good reflexes because the uh, he's a very high midichlorian count, which is where a lot of the hardcore Star Wars people who hate midichlorians being brought up kind of jump off. But yeah, midi- midichlorians, I guess, uh, indicate how force sensitive someone is like how strong and how much they can manipulate the force so if in theory your midichlorian count was higher than someone else's uh they would tell you what to do and it would look like you knew what was going to happen yeah and that, i was gonna make this the next point too so good transition there roger um, psychic connection <laughs> uh strong with the force actually i have a uh, high midichlorian count this is the part in the I guess series where we kind of figure out a little bit more about like the background of the force um, and that it is something that I guess is more intrinsic and in someone's actual blood. Um, To me that kind of made it seem like it was more of a superpower and when you're watching the first iterations of Star Wars, A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Jedi, the force is more something that you believe in and you know if you are more strongly um, believing in this force that's around you and that surrounds all things the easier you'll be able to access it Um, so for a time the force just I mean if you're a young kid who doesn't really know um, any better you're kinda thinking to yourself well if I believe in the force enough I can be a Jedi too but this one kind of throws all that shit out the window, and they're like, nah, this is this is a blood test, actually, and um, you kind of either have it or you don't. <laughs> yeah, um, I think, I mean, that's very accurate and fair, uh, what you said. I think the first movies seem more like, oh, I was destined to become, I mean, there's an element of this, too. Luke was destined to become a Jedi, but he... He did it because he believed that he could, and he went through this training. Whereas Anakin in the first movie is essentially told, 
look, dude, your blood is filled with these little critters and you could be really strong and I want to train you to become a Jedi. That's just going to be what happens. Yeah. I mean, despite everything you learned in science class and biology class, the midichlorian is actually the powerhouse cell and um, <laughs> controls all things. Um, oh, actually, no. Let's, let's go to glass shatter moments after the fact because this is roughly around the time that my glass shatter moment happens. Um, so they end up fixing the ship. They have a little rendezvous with Darth Maul, who on my re more recent viewing of this, I f kind of realized, oh, finally, Darth Maul actually does have a elongated um, handle on his lightsaber, which I didn't really recall from past iterations of the movie that I've watched. Um... That's something that was a choice by Ray Park also. I want to bring that up as a little nugget um, because originally it was just going to be the uh, regular length of a lightsaber and he's like, yo, if it's double-bladed, I cannot do a lot of the cool shit like twirl it around my neck and all this other stuff. Otherwise, Darth Maul would chop his head off or something like that. So um, that's something that I, I picked up really quick here on the towards the end of Act 2. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty interesting. I know that there is a level of input that a lot of the, maybe not a lot, but certainly some of the actors got uh, for their lightsabers. Um, I know in episode two uh, that Count Dooku, played by Christopher someone or other, uh, he had input on him having that kind of curved single lightsaber blade. Um Samuel L. Jackson famously wanted a purple lightsaber and got one. Gangster. Um, I, yeah, no kidding. Um, and I think there was a little bit less input for that original trilogy, uh, other than just those sort of color symbolism um, for, I mean, Darth Vader has a red lightsaber because red is evil. Uh, green and blue are just not, I guess. Apparently. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think we're both Badger fans and can disagree a little bit with the whole color, good, bad spectrum thing. But uh, I think it's cool that they give these actors a little bit of artistic leeway in describing how they want their lightsabers to look. Yeah. Um, I During my deep dive and prep for this, I found a story about Ewan McGregor, um, something that he detailed in an interview um, Ewan McGregor plays the young Obi-Wan Kenobi in this aspect. And the young Pope. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, they also, they brought him and, um, Liam Neeson, who plays Qui-Gon Jinn, uh, into a room. They open this locked box, and they have, like, 20 lightsaber hilts in there, and they... Um, were able to take, like, well, it was kind of rushed. They had, like, ten minutes to pick out their lightsaber hilt and what they wanted to use throughout the movie. They picked the ones that they did. They locked the blo the box, took it out of the room, and that's, like, a super mysterious Lucasfilms um, secret agent type shit right there. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty goofy. So here's, uh, so I used to work at Disney World, and uh, they have monetized what you just described. Uh, yeah. At MGM Studio, or I'm sorry, it's now Disney's Hollywood Studios. There's this whole Star Wars land that they're building, but even prior to that, 
uh, you could like build your own lightsaber and there's like probably like a dozen different parts for like the hilt and the crystal and whatever you want to design it as. And there's like a 200 combinations. And I'm, if I know the Disney company, uh, like I think I do, I would guess that a lot of those components are very similar between the Lucasfilm secret agents and those Mickey Mouse secret agents at, at, in the theme parks. I mean, it's smart. 10 out of 10 would build their own lightsaber for sure. Um, but yeah, they, they go to Coruscant um, as part of the deal. We didn't really touch on this either. Um, Qui-Gon Jinn made a bet with Watto, who essentially owns Anakin and his mom because uh, they're slaves. This is the Outer Rim, so slavery is still <clears throat> something that's a part of the, I guess, culture because it can't be very well regulated even though the rest of the Republic has outlawed it. I mean, this is a vast galaxy with several layers, so um, you can see how that's true. But Anakin is free now to go um, potentially train as a Jedi at this point. Um, and then we're off to Coruscant. Um, we finally get our face-to-face -face with um, Senator Palpatine, who's pulling some political tricks to try to get the current Chancellor um, just knocked out of position. Uh, he's a pawn on the chess pe or on the chessboard, and um, this is the part where I also got a little bit confused politically because you can apparently nominate somebody for a, a vote of no confidence, motion of no confidence, and that I guess automatically means that they vote for a new chancellor. Uh, do you have any insight on that? I don't have a ton of insight. Um, it seemed to be sort of set up that way i mean this was my glass shatter moment uh was really like the political ramifications in the star wars universe and in the senate especially um that we can took get place that, during this film we can get to that later if it's your glass shatter moment because we'll cover those we, we gloss over mine so <laughs> oh no don't worry i'll i'll save it for a little bit but um yeah. it appeared that well so the reason that they went to coruscant uh is because that's essentially like the washington dc of the star wars universe it's this planet and the entire planet is a city and it's the commercial and the political capital of the republic so this is where representatives from every represented planet go and hang out and they vote on various issues and part of the reason that the well part of the entire reason that the queen went uh was to lend some credence to her claim that the Trade Federation was blockading Naboo and she was imploring the Republic to do something about it. Um, I mean, the Trade Federation is represented there, and as soon as she had accused them of blockading the planet, they uh, came down in the Senate and did their weird little hovercraft thing uh, and just debated that that was occurring. Uh, that caused the Chancellor uh, to essentially say, we're going to pass this to a committee, and the committee is going to look into this and the queen queen Amadal is extremely adamant in saying no you need to do something about this now which is what prompted her to um ask for a vote of no confidence for chancellor valorum which eventually led to palpatine getting nominated just because it appeared he was the consensus choice and i think it's up for debate like i think he probably knew that that was going to happen um this is sort of one of the overarching 
glass shatter moments, which I can get to later. But what happens is the new chancellor uh, is appointed and the queen being disgusted by, um, by the Republic's lack of action heads back to Naboo. Yeah, and this may be unpopular opinion alert, but I kind of thought Chancellor Valorum was kind of making the right move there politically because how is he supposed to know that this is... it's In the Senate hearing, it's essentially um, Naboo's word against the Trade Federation, so you kind of do need to get a little proof under there. Um, but then apparently there must have been a whole lot of discord and distrust with this chancellor to kind of move that motion so quickly and yeah i I kind of thought he made the right move believe it or not yeah i actually would not disagree with that either um i think as a leader you're going to want to try to keep peace wherever you can but you don't want to necessarily sanction the trade federation unnecessarily either um Additionally, just sort of on a personal note, I think the guy who plays Chancellor Valorum kind of looks the part of a Supreme Chancellor a lot more than the guy who plays Palpatine does. They're weird and sickly looking, and Chancellor Valorum had a very strong jawline. He's generally <laughs> okay. more, uh, more, more leader looking, in my opinion. That's my, my, if I had my druthers, he'd still be the Chancellor, but, you know, it happens. Gotcha. Um, well, we're running a, a little long here so I want to s- speed up through this portion even though it's kind of a, a critical part. It is all action though so Act 3 they go essentially back to Naboo um, they meet with the Gungans who have left their little water village to go to somewhere ancient because apparently being above ground is a lot more safe somehow um, they barter with these Gungans, they get them essentially on their side by appealing to their vanity, <laughs> um, by making them feel like they are uh, just as equal, which, I mean, is fair, but also what are the Gungans getting out of this besides being the decoys to be slaughtered in a battle against the droids? Um, they get into the city as part of this plan, draw the droid army out, and you have Padme and her officers, and then the Jedi, along with Anakin for some reason, because this is a safe place for a kid too. Um, They bring them all into the city, and they um, hatch a plan to try to get to the Newt Gunray and the other uh, Nemoidian. Correct. Nailed it. Yeah. (laughs) Swish. Um, They try to get them... um, arrested or killed. I'm not sure which one they want want to go for. You might as well just um, kill them. (laughs) Um, And they run into Darth Maul. Uh, This is where he finally gets some great action. Um, And yeah, anything on this part before the conclusion? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that in making episode one that George Lucas really had a lot of things he wanted to fit in from like the cutesy want to make the kids watch this Jar Jar stuff to the special effects to making it look like an older time before the original trilogy. Uh, The one thing that I think he got in that really, really is welcomed by almost everyone are the epic sword fights and that 
sword fight at the very end, as well as the one at the beginning, um, but especially the one at the end with the swelling music. The super epic background is just awesome. I mean, huge vertical spaces, lots of jumping, great sound effects. Colors are great. Darth Maul looks like just ferocious. I mean, it's a great scene. Yeah, definitely. This is probably one of the most formidable and acrobatic of Jedi or Sith Lords that we've seen. Because, um, I mean, even in the past, you couldn't really do too much, especially with the special effects um, that they were able to get. Now it's on a different level, and they definitely were flexing those chops. Um, there's a battle scene that takes out that's overlapping. Um, that includes Anakin somehow getting stuck into a Naboo cruiser that gets put on autopilot to go help knock down, was it the shields or knock out the droids command it's like a center? Con, it's like a control ship that yeah. controls the droids and yeah. Anyway, he, he does that with R2. He falls ass backwards into saving the Gungans from getting essentially slaughtered because they are fighting with electric balls of some kind, that like literally electric tennis balls that they are just chucking at these droids, and the droids have guns and tanks, and I'd, I don't know. The, gun, Look, gun, the I'm, Gungans also have shields. Uh, that's sort of their entire thing, is they have those huge shields that kind of hold them off for a little bit, and then also shields that deflect blasters, but, I mean, you're chucking, like, chucking dodgeballs at these guys and <laughs> they're firing guns at you it's just not it doesn't seem like a fair fight and they made jar jar binks a general so i think you automatically lose points um before the battle even starts by just just ill-fated and bad leadership there on the boss man that's called a tactical error <laughs> Definitely, definitely. I would say those shields, too, kind of made them fish in a barrel. Um, because if the droids had decided to use more tactical routes by surrounding them, then it, it would have been a, a massacre, and they would have been all slaughtered. Yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of the Gungans, uh, generally. So I would not have been that against that. Yeah, well, I mean, we talked about this in the group chat. Um... I, I thought I was a little bit Gungan racist and a little bigoted towards Gungans because I thought they were super annoying and, like, really bad and uh, just poor decisions all around by the Gungan, uh, Gungan peoples in this movie. Uh, but, yeah, they destroy the droid command ship, so they all shut down. This also allows Padme and her uh, little cohort to capture the Trade Federation Oh, this is where um, we also get the conclusion of the lightsaber battle, I guess you could say. Um, for whatever reason, there's these shield dividers that are separating Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon from doing battle with Darth Maul. Darth the Maul. reason is uh, dramatic, dramatic sequencing. Yeah, exactly. Not just that bad construction. <laughs> um but yeah, Darth Maul, this is the first time in a movie for Star Wars where the lead actor or the guy that gets top billing, spoiler alert, 
Qui-Gon gets struck down. Uh, Liam Neeson had top billing in this movie, and I, I mean, well, actually, first time, second time was Harrison Ford in um, Force Awakens, but this is the first time that this happens, and it, to me, it was kind of shocking. I was like, oh, well, I thought this guy was supposed to be a a bigger presence in the overarching storyline, but he was he was one and done. Didn't want to play any other games. Not in this series. Not in my house. <laughs> uh, I, I think that anyone who watched the original trilogy and then watched, like, not the kids who were seeing this as their first Star Wars film, but the old school fans who saw A New Hope and Return of the Jedi and Empire Strikes Back probably expected him to die at some point just given that he's not a part of those later films yeah that's fair i mean you could probably surmise that about a lot of the people that are there because obviously that happens but i don't know maybe it was a i, I always thought especially in the force awakens harrison ford he's just like you know what i will do this for a movie but i'm not sticking around for an entire trilogy and I think maybe at this time Liam Neeson was like, yeah, I'm not going to commit. Because I started filming for this in 97. And I'm not sure. I can't remember when the um, when the third one in this series finally lands. But I think partially he just didn't want to. He's a big name actor. He's the biggest one. So he's probably like, you know what? I don't want to be tied down. And this was a time when getting tied to a, a big IP like this wasn't in vogue. So... Yeah, and that that makes sense from that perspective as well. Um, I just looked this up while you were saying that. Uh, Am I wrong? Star Wars, <laughs> no, Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith came out in 2005, a full eight years. I'm sure principal filming was probably 2004, so filming would have been seven years after that or after Episode One. Um, I can definitely yeah see his desire to not necessarily be in it the entire time. Yeah, that I, maybe that's just me overanalyzing, but I I do think about things like that when I'm watching these films. Um, yeah, uh, Obi Wan, he ends up getting revenge. He slices Darth Maul in half, uh, which was sad for me because I thought Darth Maul was pretty badass, and he had like six lines and maybe ten minutes of screen time, which was a total. That's just gross negligence, I think. Total underusage of a great character. Um, and they let freaking... I, I don't know how many times we're going to complain about Jar Jar Binks here, but I'm throwing it out there. Darth Maul should have got more screen time than Jar Jar Binks. That's for damn sure. Uh, there's no debate. Um, I actually have that as one of my notes in reference to Darth Maul. Is he has like four lines the entire film. And he has a really pleasing voice. He has like this British accent. He's a really cool-looking character. His makeup, I mean... This yeah. reason all those kids were him as Halloween is because he looks really badass. He's it's a cool Peter. Um, it's Peter Sir Serfanowitz. Serfanowitz. Um, he's actually the the Tick now on I believe it's Amazon's uh, exclusive series, The Tick. Um, he does a lot of voiceover work, and yeah, he does have like a smooth, uh, smooth speaking voice, I guess. Yeah, super in on him, super out on Jar Jar Binks. Uh, they definitely flipped that, and I think that's what makes a little a, a fair number of people a little cold on this film. Ten out of ten out on Jar Jar. Um, 
But yeah, they defeat Darth Maul. Um, they save the city, I guess. It ends in a giant ceremony um, preceded by Qui-Gon having his body burned um, Darth Vader style. Um, Anakin has been promised to be trained um, while Qui-Gon was dying and Yoda finally gives in and says, okay, fine, train this little shit, Obi-Wan. Um, and they they end it in a, a parade and a celebration to give us a little bit more of these Gungans. Yeah, and thank God. That's what this film needed was more Gungans. Um, cap it I off, wanted George. to say that that weird ball that they hoist at the end uh, is that same ball that, that Trump was touching with the Saudis. Now yeah, one picture. What was that? I have no idea what the hell that was. No one knows. It's a mystery. I was like, okay, I guess this is just a... a is it another energy ball? Or are they going to chuck it at a droid to get it to stop working? Yeah, so there's two kinds. There's the celebratory, celebratory energy balls, and then there's the ones that make robots blow up uh <laughs> the battle um but yeah that's the the movie we're definitely looking into the sequel um let's move to glass shatter moments uh let's talk about what essentially if you hear this and you're like well shit why didn't they just do that this would have been a whole lot easier if they solved the problem this quickly my glass shatter moment was why not take the mom off of Tatooine? I know she's a slave too, but why not take her with, because who the hell is going to stop you? You're going to take her to a, uh, I guess, land or an area where slavery is not legal anymore, so nobody's going to persecute you for stealing, um, I guess, quote-unquote, human property. Um, and this would have probably stopped Anakin from going over to the dark side, thus plummeting into the Darth Vader persona and being a dick for about two and seven-eighths movies uh, in the previous installments of Star Wars. Man, my glass just got shattered. <laughs> I need a glass shatter sound effect. I was like, why not... Bring, I mean, they live in a separate house. Watto is like, I think he's yeah, crippled, dude. to be honest. They're um, not going to get in trouble for freeing a slave. I mean, as mad as Watto wants to be, he can be as... They would have just freed a slave. And yeah, it definitely would have prevented some of Anakin's anger issues. Exactly. Um, I have written down that I think a lot of the reason he's attracted to Padme was some weird mommy issue stuff which Ooh. is not great either. And also, the <laughs> more you think, think about that. it, it's one of those uncomfortable things that you just don't want to think about too long. It also yeah. might have prevented a lot of those cringy pickup lines in episode two. So, yeah, that's a super valid, yeah. super valid observation. See, one thing I did find in my research, though, that was my glass shatter moment when I was watching the movie. I did find, and they didn't articulate this in the film at all, so that's why it was so jarring to me that they didn't just solve this problem from the get-go, is that apparently they do install, like, chips inside of slaves that blow up if you try to escape, or they trigger it. Um, so that that's something I found in on, like, Wikipedia, but it was not articulated in the movies and it's hard to know if that's actually canon at all. 
Yeah, uh, I tend to trust Wikipedia when it comes to Star Wars stuff. It's edited by the super fans. Um, and that sounds like something that the writers would have thought of. I mean, the people that make them come up with this stuff are people that are asking the questions that you're asking, and they always need to have an answer. And usually, I'd imagine it's sort of an on-the-spot thing, like, why didn't they just take Shmi? Uh, uh, because they couldn't, because she'll blow up. And possibly Anakin, too. But I yeah. I maintain that would have solved things a lot quicker, too. <laughs> fair. Fair point. Lateral damage. Uh, do you want to talk a little... Did you have more to say about your glass shatter moment? you want to talk a little bit more about it? Yeah. Uh, my glass shatter moment... Um, well, it's really two moments. Uh, so a lot of you listeners might have ascertained uh, by my general tone about episode one that I'm not the biggest fan uh, of this movie in relation to the other movies it's probably my least favorite star wars film um in watching it this time um i kind of appreciated a little bit more um how it sort of sets the geography by which we see the other movies and by that i mean emperor palpatine rising to power um he just sort of manipulates his way into the supreme chancellorship and that's this huge thing for the rest of well, at least for the uh, the prequel trilogy, like the only reason that the Sith can take control of the Republic is because he has the top gig. He can be everywhere he needs to be, and he can control the entire clone army. Um, the other way that it sets up the entire rest of the universe uh, is because Anakin gets trained in the ways of the Force. And initially the entire council's against this, and the only reason that they agree to it is because it was the dying wish of Qui-Gon. He essentially sacrifices himself so Anakin gets trained. Like, Qui-Gon's this rebellious Jedi who's trained by Count Dooku, who's the bad guy in the next movie. And he just wants An Anakin to get trained against the will of Yoda and Mace Windu, and they do it anyway because Obi-Wan is very insistent. This is what Qui-Gon wanted, so... It they train this guy who they know is dangerous, who Yoda says is full of all this fear, and that could lead to a bunch of suffering, but they do it anyway because Qui-Gon sacrificed himself. So it sets up Darth Vader to become a thing. Uh, it sets up Senator Palpatine into Emperor Palpatine, who will eventually control the entire galaxy. It's just blew my mind a little bit. I guess in the back of my head I knew a lot of this before, but... Hindsight. <laughs> Yeah, no, and looking for these specific details, that's a little bit easier to see. Yeah, um, that's a good transition to the, the next part. I was going to save this for last, but we might as well just knock it out right away. Um, obviously, films like this come with a lot of things that are unwritten, um, things that aren't overtly said but maybe hinted at, maybe some Easter eggs are plopped in there. Uh, maybe it's just up for audience interpretation. Uh but let's talk a little bit about the fan theories surrounding this film. Um, the one that comes to mind, my favorite fan theory, is perhaps Qui-Gon Jinn was actually a low-key Sith. You've heard that one, right? Uh, I've heard of things similar to that. Go on. Go and uh, elaborate on that a little. Well, essentially, I mean, it, it can be interpreted in both ways. That no, Qui-Gon was actually just good. Um, but there are 
little things that fans have obviously just pointed to that suggest otherwise. Um, his Qui-Gon's previous master, as you said, was Count Dooku. Um, so that is something that people look at like, oh, well, where, where is Count Dooku? Did he just disappear and all of a sudden Qui-Gon is still good? Because there is a pretty close bind between apprentice and master, especially when you're talking about Sith Lords, because if you go into that sort of lore, there was a rule of two, um, that was created by Darth Bane maybe a thousand years prior to this. Um, which stated there's going to be a master and an apprentice. Um, so there's always a close bond between the two. Um, he pushed, as you said, to train Anakin. Um, obviously, everybody whiffed on whether or not Anakin was going to be um, worth the risk, but he was really insistent on it. And there's... You, you could say maybe it was just compassion and empathy for Anakin's situation and perhaps that he had the potential to be something good, um, but perhaps he saw something else in um, the young, young, young Jedi. Um, it's stated, too, that Qui-Gon's always defying the Council, the Jedi Council. Um, Obi-Wan says if he stop being such a rebellious old dude that he would actually be on the council rather than taking um, orders and listening to advice from them so I think maybe that was a little bit of a maybe he's rebellious for a reason maybe because he's doing things that he shouldn't be doing or maybe he's actually covering up more insidious things that are just looking rebellious initially and that's my fan theory yeah, I could see that. Um, I don't personally agree with that, but I definitely can see how people... I mean, he essentially is the one who makes sure Anakin gets trained in the ways of the Force. Um, and a lot of this wouldn't have happened if he wasn't such a cowboy about dealing with what the Council wants and then executing it sort of how he wants. Um, I think that there's a pervasive influence that the dark side and the Sith have over the actions and consequences that unfold in all of these movies. And I mean, I never really thought of it until now, but maybe, I don't know, Count Dooku was an apprentice at some point. Perhaps he was, um, perhaps there was some sort of influence that he had exerted on Qui-Gon to push to make this strong child eventually get trained i don't know yeah you never know i mean they can listen to whatever the best fan theory is and then just say yep you know you nailed it that's what we wanted that's what we intended yeah i mean essentially i think really qui-gon is just the the seasoned cop at the precinct who's going to do things his way and not listen to the the top brass on how to do his job the way he feels it should be done so that's Getting just too old for this yeah, exactly. He's he's getting too old for it, and he's going to do it the way that he wants. Um, did you run into any other fan theories? I didn't really see any other than like the major Qui-Gon one. Um, let's see, there's... I mean, other than the, Jar Jar's well, being a, a Sith Lord, too. God I've heard damn that it, one. That's what I was going to say. That's, I, I didn't know <laughs> if it was appropriate for uh, this episode. I mean, there's some point later on that Jar Jar has a little bit more of an influence in the Senate, 
True. Um, but he does lead them to the Gungans who help them escape, who helps the queen escape, and they hold up the army, and they set, I don't know, it sort of sets the whole thing in motion. And Jar Jar is sort of a cog in these first three movies into making sure that Vader and the Emperor rise to power. Um, God, I did have a fan theory, but I forgot it, because that Jar Jar one is just, excuse the pun, it's very jarring um, in yeah. terms of, of thinking that this totally inept character is actually like this mastermind. Yeah, def- I mean, I'll say one thing about it, and then we can dive into some some after-movie notes that I may have written down to get your opinion on those. Um, but I do think... I think it's like thinking that Donald Trump is actually somebody who's playing three-dimensional chess um, when actually he's not <laughs> smart enough to do so. And I think Jar Jar Binks is not smart enough to play any sort of espionage or any secret games. I, I think he's just a, a whiff on a character, and that's why you hardly see him going forward. That might be after... That might be something we have to explore on future shows. The if Donald Trump is Jar Jar Binks, who is X character from Star Wars, because that oh is God. fantastic. Definitely, that might be a whole separate pod. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I have some some post notes. A um, hundred and thirty-three minute runtime. Only 10 to 15 minutes contained no special effects. So we touched on this a little bit before. That is a lot of special effects. And I've read several pieces stating that, hey, it's easier to actually pick out the scenes where there's no special effects and try to count like the dozens and hundreds of scenes that have some sort of special effect or, you know, green screen action. The sets were only built at the height of the characters um, in some cases. Liam Neeson apparently was so tall that they had to spend a little bit extra money to make the sets taller. Um, the rest was set to like green screen or blue screen. And one last thing, they actually had to hire somebody to create an entire new... Uh, program to eliminate like the blue glare or the blue um, I guess sheen that might be like on the floor or appearing on objects from all the blue and green screen that they use throughout the movie they had to edit that out that's incredible I actually had no idea I'm now trying to think of the 10 or 11 minutes that don't have CGI just because I mean Everything was. I mean, the Gungans yeah. were CGI, the Nemodians were CGI, all the space battles were CGI. I mean, even when it's just two human characters on a ship, the entire background is, I mean, looking out the window, it's space. That has to be CGI unless they went way over budget. Yeah, I know. Part of the reason I didn't see this, but I'm pretty sure I heard this a while ago, was that Part of the reason it took so long for these prequels to come out was because George Lucas wanted the uh, technology to catch up. Um, I don't think it caught up quite as well just now. The Clone Wars is actually super good with technology and especially the um, Revenge of the Sith. But this one, I think maybe they started a little bit too early. Um, it did take them two years of post-production to uh, finish this film, which is a long time even by today's standards. Wow, that is just a crazy long time. And yeah, I would agree that it's probably not 
if his intention was to make this movie where, I mean, there are battle droids and there are Gungans that look all unique and don't look like it's a bunch of just weirdos wearing suits uh, and have, like, really cool-looking space battles with chromed-out battleships, yeah, he probably could have waited a couple more years. Um, that being said, I mean, for 19-whatever, this was filmed and post-edited, looks pretty good. I mean, it's not going to stand up to whatever the last Transformers movie is, but, I mean, technology's progressed so much. The they last could, night, okay. <laughs> yeah, they, they could definitely stand to um, to update this if they really wanted to, but, well, you know what? I'm sure it would still make a killing in theaters. I don't... I wouldn't rule that out as something that could happen. True that. Um, another little note here. I want to get into casting a little bit more deep later, but uh, Benicio Del Toro almost played Darth Maul. Damn. Apparently he decided not to because of the lack of dialogue, actually. So, I mean... Yeah, I that, mean, that's I something agree with that, him. That's something that we said is some i mean darth maul doesn't speak a lot and you can't really fault him for not wanting to yeah that being said i mean it would have been really cool if he was in this film um so george lucas he kind of set up a deal like a new hope um where he didn't take a director's salary and he made most of his money off um toys and commercial tie-ins and when i saw this little bit of uh, information, I immediately thought of Jar Jar Binks, and I blamed that reason for that character, because he wanted something that was marketable to children, so George could line his pockets a little bit more. What do you think of that? Am I right on that theory? Yeah, that's not even a theory at this point. Um, <laughs> I think anyone who, I mean, I, this doesn't apply to me, but anyone who grew up in the 80s, I mean, I've seen stories about these people who bought every Star Wars action figure from yeah. Han Solo to R2-D2 to the robots who are literally just rectangles with feet that you see for one scene in one movie. Uh, and they probably charged 10 bucks for those, knowing full well they're going to sell a million of them. And this is very, very consistent with what George Lucas did in this film with Jar Jar. Yeah, I, I couldn't get that out of my mind after that. Um, so does this make the movie worse or better? If this happens, Michael Jackson wanted to play Jar Jar Binks. Better, instantly. There's not even a question. Classic character, right? Yeah, I mean, it's Michael Jackson. Come on, how is it going to be worse? Yeah, that's true. I mean, for some reason, I, I fear that with Michael Jackson and his star power that they would have made it center a little bit more on the character, which might have been a little terrifying. Um I'm not sure what stage of this Michael Jackson was in his life. I think this was the he was on the weirder end of his career. Yeah, for sure. That being said, even if it did focus on Jar Jar more, I think that Michael Jackson's one of the most interesting and biggest stars that we've had ever, uh, and that alone would make it, if not a must-watch, it at least making it make Jar Jar a much more interesting character. Yeah, um, good or worse for the movie, this one for me is definitely good for the movie. Um, it kind of shows how long this movie was being put together as well. Uh, Tupac, he wanted a role in the film. He lobbied one for one hard to try to get into this movie, but he ultimately 
was killed before uh, filming or anything deep into contract talks even happened? Uh, I think that that wouldn't have been awesome. Uh, from everything I've heard, yeah. he was one of the most unique talents in the music industry and everything he ever acted in. I mean, he's, he's a good just, actor. He's just naturally a very good actor. So I, do you know what role specifically he would have, or he wanted to be? Um, I didn't find that it was unspecified. The uh, never the, mind. I just googled it. Uh, George Lucas originally wanted Tupac to play Mace Windu instead of Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, I was gonna say that. Yeah, the um, the all the all black people look alike crowd always tie him together with Mace Windu. But I also found in my research that Mace Windu wasn't even a human until Samuel L. Jackson was cast. Apparently, he was supposed to be. Um, either an alien or a robot of some kind, maybe an android Jedi. Um, but that's what I found in my research. I don't know if that one's more current or if this is right from the showrunner's mouth. Yeah, some people would say Samuel L. Jackson is uh, an android. Motherfucker, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, as long as we're on casting, let's dive into this uh, one of the last portions I want to talk about. And that's uh, potential casting for Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, because I found some pretty big lists for this. I only took portions of it because the, the Qui-Gon list, apparently everybody in Hollywood was up for that role. Um, so let's go through this short list. Vin Diesel, Morgan Freeman, Tom Hanks, Kyle MacLachlan, Kurt Russell, or Denzel. Who could you have seen be in that role, or was it just cast perfectly? Uh, for Qui-Gon, I think it had to be someone who you could see being rebellious, but who's also a badass, um, and uh, who also can pull off the Jedi look with the weird long hair and the kind of ponytail and Kanye Yeezy Season 2 vibes. Um, I think that they hit the nail on the head with that one. Not that any of those guys would have been a bad choice, but I mean, Liam Neeson is a pretty pretty good actor in his own right. Yeah, I definitely like Liam Neeson in that role and just about any other role he's in because he's Liam Neeson and he's kick-ass. The only person I think who also may have been able to nail this role um, in, in a way that's very similar is probably Kurt Russell. Um, I thought he would be, he'd probably be a little bit more comic in the sense, but he's probably, you know, he could play that older, wise Jedi and I think he could have nailed it. Yeah, I mean, I could see that as well. I just like Liam Neeson a little bit better. I, again, all these are fantastic actors. The only one who I could see not really working in a Qui-Gon role would be Morgan Freeman, but only because I've also seen him play God, and that's just a weird mashup in my head. Um, so Obi-Wan Kenobi, um, you have Ewan McGregor in the role. Um, others up for it were reportedly Kenneth Branagh, Hugh Jackman, Tim Roth, and Harry Connick Jr., which is a weird one to me. <laughs> that last one's really <laughs> out of luck. <laughs> yeah. Um, honestly, I would have liked... I think Kenneth Branagh would have literally been the same person in that role. Yeah, I mean, Harry Connick Jr. is weird. I mean, he looks the part, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I could really see any of these guys having played it. I do like Ian McGregor. Um, 
I don't know. They, I think they probably hit the nail on the head with that one too. I could see really any, uh, at the time, youngish, uh, decent-looking actor having played Obi-Wan. You basically just needed someone who you could lock down for three movies, essentially, knowing that this guy's going to have to survive until episode four. Yeah, I don't think Hugh Jackman would have wanted to play that because I don't think he plays an iconic character unless he can get 15 to 20 years out of it. So I think he was out. <laughs> Man, can you imagine what kind of world this would be if if Wolverine was also Obi-Wan? That would be... There would be so many more fan theories. We could have talking, taken a whole podcast to talk about that. Is, it, is Obi-Wan just older Wolverine? I mean, it was a galaxy a oh, no, long you're right. time Dang. ago. I mean, he still could have been alive. He could have just all of a sudden came to Earth and started fighting wars and shit. Yeah, that's just... Anyway. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> um, any last thoughts on Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace? I power-ranked some vehicles in this movie if you'd like to hear that um i think we're running a little bit short on time because we've been we've been going for a good 90 minutes <laughs> but go dude. ahead if you want to run through them quick go ahead okay number one queen amidala's awesome ass chrome ship uh, i have number two hell. is darth maul's big ship not the stupid little speeder he, he runs around on number three are the naboo starfighters the yellow and chromed out x-wing yeah. stand-ins those are like uh, Corvettes. <laughs> yeah, I, I like them. They look pretty cool. Number four, every pod racer. They're all super cool. I mean, it's jet engines attached to like just this thing that it a has. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Number five, I have that water cruiser thing from that scene that I didn't like. I think it's just really cool looking, even if the scene sucked. Yeah. And dead last, the absolute worst vehicle, because they are vehicles, are those starships, like the bases, the big donut-looking things with the big sphere in the middle that we'll see. A couple more times in this trilogy, uh, they just look dumb. Apparently, they can go at the speed of light or whatever with warp drives, but they just look really dumb. Yeah, it's Star Wars. you got to throw physics out the window. I thought for sure last you were going to put that um, that pod racer with the four engines and the like cross energy field that just shot the bed before the race even started and didn't work at all because that one was like... I get what they were going for, but I think he, he fucked up. Yeah, I mean, he didn't win, and he might have died. So, I mean, I think it would be a little disrespectful to put him last. I mean, if your or, vehicle kills you, I don't think it's a good vehicle. I mean, whatever, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, any last thoughts besides the, the power rankings of vehicles? Uh, overall, this is my least favorite Star Wars movie. A lot of times yeah. when I talk to people about Star Wars films, I say to skip this one. Although, during this rewatch, I sort of saw that it does lay a little bit of the groundwork that shows how the Emperor rises to power and how Anakin gets to this point where he can become Darth Vader. Spoiler alert. Um, so maybe don't skip it. It It is memorable, if only because Jar Jar Banks is such a terrible character. Yeah, I mean, this one's definitely a, a chess piece, you know, lay them all out on the board type of stuff, but not necessarily move them anywhere. Um, it's a 
kind of an unorthodox uh, origin story because you get introduced to characters, but they don't really have a lot of history, not a lot of background. Um, they're just kind of there, and they get put into place. That is kind of assisted along with the fact that we this is a prequel series, so you don't have to dive that deep into them because you kind of know they're like Obi-Wan, you know him pretty well. Yoda, you know him. Uh, Palpatine, that sort of thing. But yeah, I can see jumping off at Attack of the Clones and still being in a good spot. Yeah, there's something called the Machete Order. Uh, it just omits number one. Like in terms of like watching the entire Star Wars pantheon of movies, uh, to get the entire story, it just omits number one since... I mean, you just assume that the emperor is where he is. If you care about where that, where his origin story is, you watch number one. Uh, if you care about how Anakin got to become a Jedi trainee, you would watch number one. But other than that, there's not really like a canonical reason to watch it. So I think it goes number four, or I'm sorry, episode four, A New Hope, uh, Empire Strikes Back, and then you go back and watch two and three to watch how uh, how Anakin became Darth Vader and how the whole family dynamic works uh, and how Luke became what he is and then you watch number six. It's not this mind-blowing thing, but it, it it's at least an interesting mental exercise. Yeah, that is interesting. That's a unique way to look at that or to watch the films. Uh, I'm excited to talk about Attack of the Clones. We'll have to do that fairly soon. I might be... Might be in town to do that live with you, Roger. I think that might be the one we hit, or you know, if it's if we're fast and we move with some good pace, we might actually be doing the third or fourth one by that time. I always move fast. Yeah, like a pod racer. All right. Well, um, let's wrap this up. Um, we're gonna be doing all these movies. Uh, catch me on the the Twitters at Jordan underscore Smith 27 uh, where you can get this podcast for you on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Um, Roger, you want to handle it out? Yeah. Uh, if you want to at me, I'm on Twitter at Raj underscore Podge. That's R-O-G underscore P-O-D-G-E. Uh, let me know what you think about my terrible opinions if I've offended you or somehow spoiled Star Wars for you just in one podcast, let me know. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, we'll catch you on part two. May the Force be with you. We can sleep in now. We will make it someday. Listen to what I say.